Whistleblower Report, exposing lies, deceptions, and all that has assaulted our way of life. We must take back our freedom and live as God designed in a free America that honors our Constitution and our Creator. Our experts in medicine, ministry, law, military, environment, and education empower us to grow together as a nation. such a time as this, the Whistleblower Report offers truth and solutions. Welcome to the Whistleblower Report. This is Dr. Lee for America with Inside Pharma, inside the black box of Big Pharma, to expose the lies and deception and dangers that are affecting your body and your health right now with all of the changes that have been going on that the public isn't told. Headley Reese is our expert inside pharma who has spent a career inside pharma as a consultant working for major pharmaceutical companies as an independent consultant. He's spent time developing protocols to assist in proper good manufacturing practices, proper distribution, safety, all sorts of things that ensure a safe supply of medicinals and vaccines. So Hedley Reese is our co-host and expert from inside the black box of pharma. And today we have another pharma insider and whistleblower, Dr. Mike Eden, who is going to add to the expertise with Headley Reese, talking about our subject today, mRNA, quote, vaccines, end quote, a giant, dangerous fantasy. And why do we call it that? Speaking as a physician, I definitely consider them dangerous. And as the pharma experts will tell you, it's a fantasy that they can actually rapidly manufacture something this complex, this experimental, and not have any of the usual safety clinical trials, animal trials, manufacturing standards, and all of the rest that ensure a safe supply of what is put into your body. So, Headley, thank you for being here as our co-host on every Friday's Inside Pharma, right here on America Out Loud Talk Radio and on our whistleblowerreports.org on demand our Cloud Hub and Rumble channels. We are grateful for your expertise and your courage in speaking out. And Dr. Eden, welcome to you today as well. So Headley, let's um, start with where you'd like to begin on the mRNA jabs, a giant dangerous fantasy. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, to say uh, I'm delighted to have uh, Dr. Mike Eden on this. He's um, He's on Twitter and people uh, respect what he's doing so much. 
and uh, he um, was recorded on video in London quite recently. And um, people really were very, very taken to what he said. I, I can understand why. So, but it through on that talk, as I watched the video, Mike referenced rational drug design, which uh, which is basically what he's been doing for a long time. And that's very skilled and it's a very important process. So I'm going to ask Mike, first of all, if he can give us um, you know, a bit of a summary on what rational drug design is all about. Yes, certainly, uh, Headley. It's, uh, as, as you will almost certainly know, it's uh, a phrase that we would uh, exchange within the pharmaceutical industry. And just to say, a little bit about what they, what that means. It may well have been coined, um, I certainly heard it first from uh, uh, a very famous pharmaceutical scientist who was a biologist called Professor Sir James Black. I had the privilege of working with him very briefly towards the end of his long life. Uh, he is famous for having invented or been pivotally involved in the invention of both uh, uh, beta blockers uh, and also um, H2 antacids. Uh, so both early treatments for heart disease and for gastric ulcers, both of which have been superseded in the subsequent sort of 40 years or so. But that was a big deal. He worked out um, that different things were happening in the body than they thought, uh, identified a new receptor that uh, your own signaling molecules like adrenaline and histamine, how did they work in the body, and then worked with medicinal chemists rationally, step by step, to work out how selectively to intervene in that target so as to get a good effectiveness and, and good safety as well. And so, um, in fact, when I was still a fan of my former industry, and I, I now, I've said to people, I've not fully come to terms with my own role in the industry because clearly I missed quite a lot. Um, where I was working in research, it felt honorable and scientific, but clearly I, I was aware that around me there were criminal things going on and we were never happy when such announcements were made. Um, but just the rationality, basically I say to people, if you're trying to achieve something like um, maybe getting a drug into, into the lung, you don't just grab a handful of atoms out of the chemist drawer and just hope they do something. You think, well, what are the objectives? Where must the molecule be? What kind of physical properties must it have? What kind of potency would it need to have given the doses you can give? And so on and so forth. And that you'll end up with a list of requirements and things it must not do. Uh, and then working with medicinal chemists with knowledge of the properties of, of molecules, if made this way or that way, a flat molecule or an extended conformation, you would end up with the, the skeleton, the outline of, of a design. They would make their prototypes, maybe several prototypes. And then as the biologist, I would test them and uh, give them uh, steer as to where they were close and where they had a miss. And then using that information, they would iterate by changing the structure all the time thinking about novelty because there's no good having a molecule that you can't patent at the end of the, at the, end of the day. So that whole process is called rational drug design. Um, and we were just discussing before this broadcast that just to illustrate it, if you think about the ideal molecule that you will take, say, as a tablet once a day, compared with the ideal molecule that you might inhale once a day for, for, for asthma. The, the drug you will eat once a day, maybe whatever that is that treatment is for, 
the drug is going to go through your stomach. So uh, probably the stomach lining isn't too sensitive because it's full of acid at pH 2, but it needs to be absorbed swiftly through the the lining of your intestines. uh, And you want it not to be destroyed by your liver at what's called first-pass metabolism. So you want it to be quite resilient to metabolism. And so it'll last a long time in your body, maybe 12 hours or so, but you do want it eventually to go away via predictable uh, routes. But if I contrast, also you might have a dose that um, could be 100 megs or 300 megs, or it might only be 20 micrograms, depending on the potency. You could formulate it any way you like in slightly different size capsules and so on and tablets. If you consider an inhaled molecule for a lung disease, now it's got to land directly on the sensitive part of your lung. So you need a molecule that's intrinsically very inert. You can't have one that's stinging because it would cause cough. Um, Lots of drugs are lost in development because they they produce a cough on first inhalation. But more importantly, you want it to work in the lung, not in your left toe or in your kidneys. So you want it to be absorbed slowly from the lung. Maybe that will be a drug that's um, of relatively low solubility, And you do want it to be removed quickly once it's in the blood because the whole point of inhaling it is to get a lung-targeted action and to produce as little side effects in the blood uh, as you possibly can. But the the maximum dose you can put in an inhaler, one puff or one spray of an inhaler, is really small, Uh, you know, a few tens of micrograms, maybe a couple of hundred micrograms. So it's going to have to be really potent. And so you end up with... Uh, a different set of properties depending on what you're trying to achieve. Um, and um, so the ideal oral molecule would not be an ideal inhaled molecule and vice versa. And this is all a preamble for um, informing the audience, if, if they don't know this and they may not, that these so-called vaccines are not like any vaccine that's been made in the past where you might take, you might grind up uh, a heat-killed organism and mix it up and then inject that as the vaccine these instead are there's a gene-based um uh, uh, molecule which has been carefully designed to do certain things and um i probably should take a pause there headley because it was my it was my experience at rational drug design that i guess has given me what well, potentially unique insights that i've not heard anybody else make about this Yes, and thanks, Mike. That sort of gives the understanding of the complexities and the time it takes to actually get this get this right. And we know that the nine months that we talked about with the mRNA jabs is is a fantasy. And I'm so glad you've explained. You just touched on how difficult that this is. And when this first started, I just went on to the WHO website to look up DNA vaccines. And I came across a document which was called the quality and non-clinical aspects of uh, drug development for DNA vaccines. That's either the mRNA vaccines or the adenovirus vaccines. And they are exhaustive. They are incredibly significant. And what's happened with these vaccines is that all the focus has been on clinical, but the crucial safety aspects are the non-clinical and the quality. The quality is the 
supply chain uh, element, mm -hmm. all the different mm -hmm. suppliers and contractors who have to join together to make the vaccine, and uh, also the safety of the non-clinical and things like um, immunogenicity and all the various aspects that you you know so so yeah. so so well, Mike. And they weren't touched on. And uh, Dr. Lee has got the document to put in the show notes. And you only have to read that to realize the extent of the work that has to be done. And the other strange thing was it's been written by the World Health Organization. Now, why would they do that? Because they aren't a formal regulator. The European uh, Medicines Agency has a similar document on their website, and it would be perfectly legitimate for them to have it. So I, I just wondered mm -hmm. what your thoughts were on that, Mike. Yes, well, um, well a couple of things, uh, really. That, as you said, the, there's an exhaustive list of, essentially, uh, it's a menu of tests that have to be done on a molecule, and, and it's more than just doing them. You can't just tick the box, um, although you have to do them, but you have to achieve certain results. For example, immunogenicity. So it's, you know, is this, is this injection likely to set up an allergic response? So if you get um, an allergy to grass pollen or an insect bite or a bee sting, uh, if you get a particularly prominent immunological um, response, the immunogenicity, then if you're exposed to the same thing again in the future, you could have a severe allergic response, which there will be some of the people listening who are so severely allergic to certain things that they, they even at risk of dying, um, if they're exposed, particularly you know, in an injected form or maybe an inhaled form, where the allergic response, the acute allergic response could be so vigorous that it could cause their lungs to uh, uh, to obstruct, or, or if it's systemic, it could have really violent effects on their heart and vascular function. So that's something you need to exclude. Uh, but as far as I'm aware, and uh, you know, as far as I'm aware, those tests were never even done, and yet some people have been injected. I think maybe four times with the same kind of molecule, maybe the actual same molecule, say the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine. I can assure you, if you've been injected multiple times with a molecule that's never been tested for whether it might provoke an immunological acute allergic response, that's an extremely dangerous gap in the program. And I'm afraid there are dozens of gaps like that. I'd like to give a shout out to my colleague, Sasha Latipova, L-A-T-Y-P-O-V-A. She writes on Substack under due diligence and art as an experienced uh, person who's worked in, in drug development and also manufacturing, um, that she did a review. Uh, I think it was the Pfizer vaccine, and she, she didn't review it for detail, but she went through it looking for whether the studies that would be indicated headly from that list that you outlined, some of which I've given examples, were they even conducted? And, and I'm afraid the, the conclusion, folks, is they, and this is how Sasha puts it, they avoided finding toxicolo toxicologically bad news by not doing the studies. She went through it and the vast majority of the 
so-called non-clinical studies, essentially testing animals and test tubes, they simply weren't done. They didn't do them. Um, and as you know, in your field, in, in terms of quality, uh, again, you know it's a fantasy, the idea that they elected which compound that would be manufactured and manufactured it in a few weeks or a few months is, is laughable. But just from my standpoint, looking at Sasha Latipova's list, uh, this is why I've been shouting a warning. For example, um, if you are a woman of childbearing potential, perhaps a woman who's pregnant or, or may become pregnant you know, around the same time as taking a particular uh, medicine, um, then you would want, I think, to know, you would probably take it for granted that, that uh, these molecules have been tested uh, for their potential to, to interfere with the reproductive safety of uh, some animals. You, you might think rat, you might think rabbit, if you knew anything at all. That, that is typically what they would do. Um, rat and rabbit, uh, rabbit because thalidomide produces birth defects in rabbit pups, very similar to uh, the horrible injuries it can produce in humans. And we didn't know that in the late 50s, early 60s. And, and so it's been retained. We have a rodent and a non-rodent. And you would hope, I think, ladies, that someone had diligently tested the potential and declared them good. And I'm afraid the bad news is they never even looked. They never even looked. And then I remember, to my horror, uh, the BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation, you would think, uh, you know, a trustworthy, uh, sober-minded organisation, and in one particular program, uh, a couple of things happened that I was made aware of. One is they specifically named me, Dr. Mike Eden, as uh, an anti-vaxxer and someone saying disreputable things about these wonderful injected products. Because one of the things I had said with Dr. Wolfgang Vodarg, and I will credit him as the prime author, W. O-D-A-R-G. We'll see if we can get that report. On 1st of December 2020, uh, Dr. Vodarg and I wrote to the European Medicines Agency listing um, a subset of our really serious concerns based on absence of information. And one was there was no reproductive toxicology. Uh, and yet the BBC on that occasion, spent five minutes running me down. Not that I really care what they think, but you can imagine anyone who's seen this report will then disregard it because the BBC has told you this, this man is, is not to be trusted. And then what did they do? Uh, the host introduced uh, a senior person from the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology in London and blow me down. I mean, I could hardly believe it. This woman said, no, it's completely wrong, Eden. Everything is fine, completely safe. Roll up and get your vaccines if you're pregnant because COVID is very bad for you if you're pregnant. And as a result of that, I would imagine thousands, maybe tens of thousands of young women went to their doctor, reassured that it was safe and that they should take it. And I'm afraid a lot of them lost their children to that. So these are just running through the threads of what should be done, what we identified was missing, and the consequences of that, uh, and I'm afraid we could go through this ten, 10 times over because these things, I'm afraid, um, rational dog design, I think um, they have subverted the intentions of rational drug design 
I believe my 32 years in, in, in the industry working like this with molecules that you would eat or inhale or rub on your skin, those are my three fields, these molecules, I can see the intent of the designers' minds in the molecules they chose to make. And I'm afraid my conclusion is they have been designed to injure, maim, and kill. And they have done exactly that. And that's shocking, but it's an inevitable conclusion when I look at the design and, and that complete disregard for the normal tests, Headley, that you began to list. Yes, thanks for that, Mike. Yeah, I should say something about the quality piece of it as well, because there's there's two aspects to this. There's the the, the safety um, data that uh, Mike has spoken to there. There's also the, the supply chain, which drives the safety of any drug, because when you make a drug, you have to do your testing on the drug that was manufactured. And to do that, you have to follow the standards, good manufacturing practice, good distribution practice. So you think about the cold chain, you think of these vaccines were frozen, which is unheard of. They didn't go through the normal distribution channels of wholesalers, they went direct into vaccination centers. We don't really know how, how they got there. None of this has been reviewed and evaluated by the regulatory bodies, neither in Europe or the US or any, anywhere else. And if you can imagine any company making anything, any physical product, they have to have standard operating procedures. They have to have a quality system because people need to know their role in the whole thing. And if someone asks you to put X and Y together or mix something up or whatever, it has to be done in a particular way, and it's crucial that it's done correctly. So, and when you look at the, the, the quality element of these documents, you will see the extent of, you start off with the cell lines, the animal, um, the, 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 the animal cell lines, the plasmids, the DNA plasmids, the purity, the tests, the assays, you know, the quality tests that you have to do, in the supply chain, it's absolutely substantial and none of it was done. It couldn't have been done. And that's why we're using the world fantasy and dangerous. We are now entering the world of fantasy with mm. this whole thing. Yeah, no, I, I, I want to jump in and uh, justify my remark about <clears throat> uh, toxic by design, the, these injections, the and certainly the ones I focused on, especially are the mRNA vaccines, but the general principles do apply. There are some specifics that are present in the Pfizer and Moderna products. So I'll just mention two things because they're shocking and they are true. Uh, the first one is that this, this mRNA, I mean, it sounds high tech, right? But it's it basically um, what they're doing here is jumping into the middle of um, a, a biological process that, that we've known about for maybe 50, 60 years, which is that we all know that you've got genes in your cells, in the nucleus of your cells, and they contain the code to make you. And we know also that you consist of you know, proteins and fats and so on, physical stuff. And the, the mRNA, the messenger RNA, is the literally is the messenger between your genetic instruction and the thing that's actually made your physical substance. And so if you can design a molecule, an mRNA sequence, 
what it does is uh, inserts the instructions to make something and it injects it in, inside a cell and your cell uh, dutifully uh, makes whatever it is that's encoded in this in this sequence. So it's kind of um, a little bit Star Trek. Um, I've always been a bit skeptical as to whether it could be done safely uh, and whether you could consistently even produce uh, a sequence that would remain intact all the way uh, to the factory inside your cell. But there you go. But, but here's the thing. I ask, I ask people this question. What is it about your immune system that allows you to have a peaceful life inside your healthy body most of the time? And then if you should become infected, what is it that allows your body to absolutely go to war with this invading organism? And, and, the, and the, the simplest answer, the simplest way to explain this is your body is at peace with itself. It is trained when you are developing as a, a baby in your mother's womb to not attack anything that it's that the immune system is introduced to as self. So when you're developing, every little component of your body is brought up to uh, developing cells in your immune system to say, well, this is my Eden. This is another piece of my Eden. This is another piece of my Eden. And the cells are told, don't attack this structure or these structures. Um, and so what happens is your immune system is trained to turn off responses against yourself. And we know sometimes that goes wrong when you have what's called an autoimmune disease, certain inflammatory bowel diseases, certain kinds of rheumatoid arthritis and so on, are autoimmune diseases where you the auto is you're attacking yourself. So when that normal healthy process goes wrong, those are the kind of things that happen. You can, you can get damage to organs or to tissues in joints and so on. And it can be so bad, you know, it can destroy your life. But, so, but this is how your body normally avoids attacking itself. It's trained in infancy to recognize self and to not attack it. But when something foreign lands in you, your immune system knows that that's not self because it's never seen it before. It could not have seen it before because it wasn't in you when you were being formed. Anything that wasn't in you when being formed will be classified as non-self and your immune system will absolutely go to war with it. So that's probably not a difficult concept. That probably feels right. You're at peace with yourself because your immune system recognizes all of the components of you as self, which they should not attack. And they recognize foreign, something non-self, and they go to war. Well, guess what happens when you inject a human body with mRNA or DNA encoding, we were told, a piece of this virus, a spike protein. Well, well, you'll know that that is a foreign substance. So when your body takes up this instruction and manufactures some of this non-self material, what do you think is going to happen? And the answer is exactly what I was just, just described. Your body, your immune system will absolutely go to war with every single cell and tissue in your body that's taken this stuff up and made the non-self protein by design. So it's not like I'm taking a different view of it than they are. It's always, it's intrinsically dangerous. And we hear shockingly that mRNA vaccine, vaccine factories are being uh, built in every country, you know, every continent of the planet. That's like, that was, I, my blood froze because 
they are da- they're all dangerous. They, they must be. It's an intrinsic property. But here's, let me add one additional, just one additional comment. In the case of the Pfizer and Moderna products, they were formulated or mixed with something else in order to make it make it have an objective. I described rational drug design, what were they trying to achieve? So I looked at how they formulated them. They're mixed with essentially lipid, you know, fat or grease, uh, lipid nanoparticles, quite complicated technology. And the way they work is they mimic the outer layers of your cells, which are made of, sort of fatty materials and water. And if you wrap these genetic messages in this fatty material, they glide stealthily through the walls of your cells without interruption. They go everywhere in the body. Is that really what you wanted when you had your shoulder injected with this stuff? It would go everywhere in your body, including into your heart and your brain and your reproductive organs. Well, I'm afraid that's what it did by design. That's the purpose of wrapping it in lipid nanoparticles, so it'll go everywhere. And it's even worse news that I found a 2012 paper, peer-reviewed journal. Uh, Dr. Eden, I'm going to have to stop you, and we'll come back and take up that in the second half of the, of the program. I think the key point is that toxic by design is what we're seeing medically when these lipid nanoparticles stealthily, as you say, get the mRNA material into the entire body and all of our critical organs. This is Dr. Lee for America. We'll be back with the second half of the show after the break. Check out our website, www.truthforhealth.org, and listen to our whistleblower reports every day, Monday through Friday, 12 noon and 12 midnight, on America Out Loud Talk Radio, our Cloud Hub and Rumble channels, and at whistleblowerreports.org. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the second half of the Whistleblower Report. This is Dr. Lee for America with Inside Pharma, inside the black box that is Big Pharma, where all of the lies and deceptions about drug safety and manufacturing safety is being exposed by our Inside Pharma expert, Hedley Reese, and our career pharmaceutical drug development insider and whistleblower, Dr. Mike Eden. Before the break, Dr. Eden, you were talking about the 2012 paper, and I I know the one you're talking about, and Mm -hmm. it was chilling when you shared that information with me as a practicing physician who had spent a career, almost 40 years, working in the area of climacteric medicine, which is the way that our reproductive hormones affect everything in our body beyond reproduction and fertility and sex. Mm-hmm. And that's how most people see <clears throat> the ovary hormones for, for women and the testicular hormones for men. It's about sex and reproduction, but that's not true. The, these endocrine organs, the ovaries and the testicles, produce hormones that are major metabolic communicators with every organ system in our body. And they regulate many brain pathways. They regulate cardiac function, lung function, gut function, um, bone and muscle. And uh, the entire health of the body is at stake. That's been my work 
But when you started talking about what they found in 2012 in the animal studies, I just had cold chills. So I want you to explain to Mm -hmm. our audience what you found that had been published in the pharmaceutical literature in 2012. And they knew that and went ahead with these toxic by design mRNA shots and lipid nanoparticle coatings anyway, in spite of what they knew. So tell us about that. No, you're absolutely right. I I would say it it wasn't so much in spite. They didn't just use the lipid nanoparticle coatings in in spite of this information that I'll describe. I'm afraid I I think they chose it because it had that property. Well, I think you're right. And I actually misspoke. I think that's that's exactly right. It just it was they didn't just accidentally pick this and oh dear you know whoops um, the so basically there was a 2012 paper in a, in a pharmaceutical formulation journal so it'd be the kind of scientific arena that people who work to convert say a powder drug or liquid drug into something that you can finally give to a patient so-called formulated drug or drug product um, and one of the ways in which you can protect these um, these delicate bi- biological products, not that I particularly would want to be injected with one, although I can think of legitimate reasons, but not, not for vaccines. But if you have this mRNA, um, that they chose to wrap it in lipid nanoparticles, so very small particles of fat, essentially, but it's a very specialized construction. And this paper, uh, essentially, the, the title was something like... Um, you know, these uh, the macromolecules formulated in this way, an unrecognized uh, human fertility risk, question mark. It was a review of the literature, and it said essentially that a series of molecules like these lipid nanoparticles, when used to package these macro or large molecules, had the property in, in all the species tested. And it was a series of strains of rats and a series of strains of mice and in all cases, when injected into the animals, they ended up with a higher concentration than average in their ovaries, as well as some other organs, but always the ovaries. So if it was just randomly distributed, you'd find a little bit in the ovaries because the ovaries are quite small, but they were finding disproportionately large amounts. In other words, it was being taken up or accumulating in that in those tissues. And uh, on every occasion it was studied, it always did this, accumulated in the ovaries. Now, there is a principle of toxicology, and I, my first degree was toxicology, uh, that you have to use the, the most advanced data that you've got. You can't say, well, maybe it won't occur in humans and just ignore it. You, you have to assume that the data you have in hand is indicative of what will happen in humans. So if you've got some strains of mice and some strains of rats, and the material concentrates in the ovaries, you have to assume that what that's what's going to happen in human females administered this material. And so I would say to you, as a professional one-time toxicologist, that's my assumption. Um, and no one's done any work to assuage my concerns about it. And indeed, as a physician, you've seen numerous uh, uh, signs that are entirely consistent, haven't you, with that possibility of disruption uh, of the ovarian endocrine function. Yeah, C- can we? That yes, uh, absolutely. This is this is absolutely stunning. Well, it's shocking stuff. Yeah. Um, it, can we move much. on now? 
Mm -hmm. I had a look at um, the authors of the uh, quality and non-clinical documents, and one of them worked at the National Institute of Biological Standards and Control, which is part of the UK's Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. Now, um, I, as we've all been doing, we are tracing through to see who's been doing what and you know how some of this stuff has come around. And we've mentioned previously that with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Dr. Ian Hudson uh, now works for them. He was the CEO of the MHRA until 2019. But in 2016, he chaired and set up a duplicate, um, I'd call informal regulatory body of which nearly every regulatory body in the world is a member. And they have regular meetings. And um, it seems to me anyway that they've used this body to hollow out the regulatory agencies, but based, you know, it having been done through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in the UK as the test bed for approving these the, 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 these jabs. And, yeah. and then when you look at the chair of that organization, it's called the International Coalition of Medicines Regulatory Authorities, uh, the ICMRA, the executive director of the European Medicines Agency is also chair of this duplicate body. So this is Emmett Cook, who um, spent a long time at the WHO, and um, she's also worked for other um, ph pharmaceutical trade organizations. So you have to wonder whether there's conflicts of interest involved mm -hmm. here. Um, yeah. Just your thoughts on that. Yeah, yes, I, I, I recognize, yeah, I wrote to uh, uh, M Emma Cook, E-M-E-R is her name, E-M-E-R, and then C-O-O-K-E, I think. Um, yeah. And so she she was uh, one of the people we wrote to with that that um, open letter that I referred to earlier, first December twenty twenty, by uh, doctors Bodarg and Eden. Uh, we wrote to Charles Michel, who is the head of the European Commission, I think, uh, and Emma Cook, the EMA head. And so when you gave me your information some time ago to say that she was chairing a parallel world group I, I thought well where are they where are they getting their uh their uh, sort of how they should operate you know wh where are their operation principles coming from uh, because they're different in different parts of the world as you'd expect for different democracies so japan america uk and europe have uh, overlapping requirements but they're not identical uh, and they shouldn't be. They, they should be what are required by people representing citizens of those countries. So if you're going to go for a world body, what are you going to give up? You know, um, and what, how can she possibly wear both hats and discharge the two roles at the same time? Uh, and also, why are they even making such a body that there is not a body currently, of, uh, legitimate or otherwise, that covers the world, international Red, regulatory affairs there isn't there isn't such a body there's a trade body that's about standards but there isn't a body that can sit with members that cover all the countries that say that could in in future say yay or nay to a proposition and my concern is the same as yours sadly i i honestly think they have created 
an alternative regulator, which will just be introduced as a fate accompli that will appear on your TV set as if that's the way it should be. And hereafter, here on after, it won't be your national regulator, it wouldn't be your FDA or the MHRA in the UK anymore. It'll be this group led by this. You know, Dr. Eden, that I think that concern is very valid. And actually, it parallels the shadow government, the parallel shadow government that is going on in the United States of America right now. Yes. Under the puppet of (laughs) dementia Joe Biden, Mm. there is a whole shadow government that has taken over our constitutional republic that is running lawless. And I think they're setting up parallel regulatory agencies under global control. And they've been doing that in other ways for many years. I mean, going back a hundred years, look at the Fed, look at the central banking system. Mm-hmm. All of that's controlled by a very few people. It's not controlled directly by the governments that think they control it. No, it's actually shocking. I mean, I, I wasn't aware of this until sometime after 2020. Like most people, I assumed that the the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve Bank of New York or whatever, I thought they were I thought they were publicly owned and democratically accountable. I'm afraid, folks, neither are true. They're private institutions and they don't even report to the government of your country. They are ultimately their allied to what's called the Bank of International Settlements that was founded, I think, in 1932. The initial one was between America, UK and Germany uh, and handled reparations after the First World War and has since expanded to include, I think, the central banks of every country in the world except Iran, Cuba, and and one other that I can't remember. But every other country in the world reports up to the privately held Bank of International Settlements that nestled in Switzerland next to the WHO, that nestles next door to the World Economic Forum. So basically, world government exists in, in gestational form in Switzerland in the form of a a medical regulator that that is right now trying to seize the control of your country and rip it from the hands of democratic uh, uh, politicians. Um, And with the banking system is already, has been international for a long time. And now if we have medicines regulation as well, it's like what's left, you know, police, fire departments and refuse collection pretty much, you know, it's nearly done. No, you're exactly right. It's quite ominous. And then we go to what you've been concerned about all along, Headley, which is the total abdication of the regulatory oversight functions that were designed to oversee compliance with good manufacturing practices and proper distribution standards. Yes, this is where we re-enter the world of fantasy. Uh, it, 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 you know, it's hard to believe the extent to which they've just abandoned all the checks and balances that are needed to produce safe, effective drugs. And this is so much fantasy. I, I am um, someone uh, who comments uh, frequently on my Substack. 
um, sent a link to something called Resilience to Manufacture mRNA for Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine. And uh, uh, the article basically says, um, uh, Resilience, a company seeking to build the world's most advanced biopharmaceutical manufacturing ecosystem, and Moderna, a biotechnology company pioneering messenger RNA therapeutics, today announced an agreement to manufacture mRNA for the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. So we know Moderna has no skills whatsoever in manufacture or development of biologics. Uh, we know that, but there's a video of the site that they've got in Ontario and Canada, and you couldn't make it up. <laughs> they, sh they show in the facility, the building, and there's about five cars in the car park, it's all very quiet, and then they go into the plant, and all the equipment is absolutely brand spanking new. The operators there are pretending to tighten nets or move certain things. Everything spick and span, totally clean. It could not be an operational uh, uh, plant. And then when you look at the resilience uh, um, website, and I think you've got these links, uh, Dr. Lee. Well, they claim all sorts. <laughs> and when you look at the board, the people in the team, they're all in shirt and ties, and they all look like businessmen. They all are businessmen. And these small companies, Moderna and BioNTech, they are just businessmen who are pulling the strings with outsourced manufacture, with no care in the world for the safety of, of patients. Um, so because their focus is profit, not people. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I wonder where this is going to go because when we look at the press, there's there's one. Um, I've, I've got one article from the fringes to the forefront. The mRNA era has taken hold of pharma. Now, this is a publication called Pharma Voice. And you read through it, and they're all so excited about this mRNA. But you know what this is? If you remember the uh, dot-com bubble that we had in the early 2000s, where the internet was going to be the next big thing, the World Wide Web, and companies started to pile into it, invest in it, but the technology couldn't keep up with the, the idea. And, you know, in those days, it wasn't broadband. We had these modems, and it would take you, like, you know, two, two minutes just for one page to load up. And, you know, it sounded good, but, you know, people weren't taking it up. And it was only when broadband, the capability of broadband came along, suddenly this came to life. So at the moment, we're in the dot-com bubble phase where investors are piling in money, thinking this is a great new thing, when they don't understand the underlying technology weaknesses. And these aren't just weaknesses, these are dangers. So, you know investors are going to find they are throwing their money down the down the drain if they if they if they pour money into this but this is going to happen is it absolutely going to happen because you cannot make these products safe and effective unless you you commit 
this fraudulent uh, um, um, event this this happened. Well, not only are investors throwing their money down the rat hole and they're being lied to, but the public is being lied to and it's costing lives. That's the bigger concern for all of us. It, well, why, why I say investors? Because the industry is where it is today because investors have been putting their money behind patents, you know, Oh, oh, I understand what the investors are doing, but I'm saying our concern as human beings and as health professionals and scientists and researchers, we're concerned for people's lives. And people are dying because of this technology that everybody's buzzing over as the latest thing since sliced bread. Yeah. And we're going to make all this money and they're totally callous to the death and destruction of people's lives. They're causing. That's what makes me angry. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, so I think we're at the stage here now uh, where this is so wrong and out of this world and such a fantasy that you wonder what's going to happen Next, really, I mean, what, uh, Mike, you know, what do you think going forward the world needs to do to put an end to what's going on? Yeah, as, um, if the world ran the way the world used to run, you know, maybe four years ago, it wouldn't be necessary for me to say anything because these these um, serious problems, um, you know, the, the provocation of autoimmunity is is guaranteed if the molecule you're injected with is is intact and, and we know from limited independent analysis that they're not they're basically as you've said headley you, you can't manufacture this stuff with a, a few months run up and expect them to be basically anything particular that there'll be there will be some anything other than what it was you intended to make and there'll be inconsistent batch to batch because they've not done the work they've not done the hard yards to understand how to manufacture so but those people who unfortunately got injected with something that did contain a fair amount of the intended messenger rna in lipid nanoparticles will have had some degree of autoimmune reaction that may have made them ill um, may have made them very ill it could have produced a permanent deficit may even have killed them and there have been a lot of deaths. Um, and I'm afraid that if if people don't, what we what I need, what I'm asking for, especially people who are retired industry people, but for pity's sake, if you've heard me and you think I might be on to something and you haven't yet spoken out, literally for, for the love of God, you know, for, for the sake of humanity, I beg you now to, to get noisy, to get loud. And uh, if, if you agree with me, echo what I'm saying, because you'll be much more credible if you're the second, third, fourth or tenth person saying it. And the risk to you will fall proportionately, because being the first person, I can assure you, has not been a great experience for me. But if you're the second or fourth or tenth person, the authorities won't be interested. They, would, they know they will have lost at that point. But speak up, uh, because I like lots of people saying these kind of things from my area of specialty. I'm so heavily censored, it's a joke. 
And, you know, I, I'm restricted to, uh, you know, bespoke recordings like this, and I'm very grateful to better reach the audience. But I, I, can't, I can't be found by Googling. I can't appear on YouTube. I can't post under my own name on Twitter. I can't, I can't reach the world except through recordings like this. So if you hear me, please hear the desperation in my voice. If you don't speak out, we're going to go under. Humanity will go under the wheel of this you know, uh, cult, which I think is totalitarian in nature and murderous in intent. I think that is no better said, Dr. Yeadon. It is absolutely death and destruction by design. And we are grateful for your courage and the fact that you have been tireless in your efforts since I first heard you in Mm. 2020. Actually, it was in the fall of 2020, you were Mm. already warning about the damage to human life human reproduction, fertility, and future generations. And and I was very, very keenly uh, paying attention to what you were saying then, and you were instrumental in all that we've been doing since to expose this death and destruction and the danger of this massive assault on human life. Headley, you have also been courageous in all that you're doing to expose inside the black box of big pharma. I'm grateful to both of you. I'm honored to be working with you. I think from the standpoint of seeing the damage in medical practice and having both of you be able to bring from your incredible careers, the perspective to understand why this damaging is happening and why we are working so hard to educate people. And all of you listening, please share these programs with your networks. People's lives are at stake. There is nothing more serious than sharing this information to help save lives, God's precious gift of life. It is not the government's to control. This is Dr. Lee for America with today's Inside Pharma Whistleblower Report. We'll be back again every day, Monday through Friday, with Whistleblower Reports, exposing the lies and deceptions and bringing you truth, hope, and solutions for just such a time as this. God bless you all share our work, sign up at our website, truthforhealth.org, join our email campaign and share our information and start making a difference in your community before it's too late. This is your life at stake.